Your ears do not deceive you. You've just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill. I'm your host for this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast from Comic Book Yeti. And today, I'm really happy I'm sitting down with comics creators Christoph Borgarch. Did I get that right? You did. You certainly did. Yes. And his co-creator, Marie Anger. Like, Anger. Um, All right. Who have a new YA fantasy graphic novel coming out with Dark Horse called Under Kingdom. Thank you both for hanging out with me today. It's it's lovely to be here. Yeah. All right. So what's the elevator pitch for the uninitiated who have not yet heard about this lovely project? Do you want to go, Marie, or do you want me no, to? No, I would like. I want you to go with your wonderful words. <laughs> your beautiful, um, your beautiful writer's words. Love yeah, it I mean, yeah, look the 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 quick pitch is if you put like how to train your dragon, troll hunters, and gravity falls in the blender, basically. Um, but it's about this kid uh, Shay, whose mom goes missing, uh, and he finds out she ran this kingdom of monsters that live underneath his town. So with her out of the picture, now he has to step up and take over. And 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 you know this this thirteen uh, year old kid figuring out how to run this complex, angry, violent kingdom of monsters. Well, I got a chance to read a review copy of the book. I, I got to say, I really really enjoyed it. Um, Marie, your artistic style is, is really quite unique. I want to get into the visuals kind of in a minute, um, but let's talk about kind of the story's construction specifically. I wanted to talk about the different factions that are presented in the Under Kingdom: the tricky, the strong, the icky, the few, the creepy, and the imps. So we have kind of the usual cast of of supernatural and fantasy beings in the story, but with the the YA target market, they feel like honestly like a clever way to just talk about clicks in high school. You know, am I way off? I think you're 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 way on. I definitely think some of these clicks are a lot more in a weird way like accepting than some clicks in high school. But mm. I I think that yeah, at the end of the day they're probably just a little bit overgrown and ancient high school click horrible horrible tables to sit at at fang keep yeah and i think that was the other thing and we've actually sort of uh marie and i in the back matter for the actual actual book talk a little bit about factions. and from my perspective this is uh (laughs) this is probably like a boring answer but it was a great storytelling tool um because, you know, with the the monsters, it's a really eclectic bunch. A lot of, you know, the monsters would, like, Marie would just draw stuff, and I'd be like, hell yes, just throw that in there. Um, so the factions were a way of us kind of, like, making the world work and, and, and meld, you know, and it kind of brings, for lack of a better word, the, like, Game of Thrones, like, intrigue element as well, you know, and, and it kind of is a good base for the politics to take place, you know, because that, that's obviously a, a little bit of a, a part of this first book and something we really want to do if we we get to more as well as to kind of explore, you know, the politics, different, you know, kind of uh, tensions between the factions. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves monsters. I mean, that's an easy play, right? So where did you stop and start with where you wanted to pull all these fun inhabitants and, and make them inhabit the world together? Oh, man. I feel like Christoph would just kind of let me draw whatever monster I wanted to do. Yeah. And then we would just start we just started eventually sorting them and I I kind of go on monster kicks where I'll draw like a certain type of one monster for a really long time and then I'll pivot and I'll draw a different type of monster for a while. And then a couple tried and trues like I'm always kind of drawing Nosferatu's, I'm always drawing um like weird goblin creatures and stuff like that. And so we 
just included them all. <laughs> yeah. And the important ones got put into factions. So like, I think there's a lot of Nosferatu's and I even think that they got a call out on like the, the creepy faction page. They, yeah. They said part they of did, there. Yeah. yeah. So there's like a couple that kind of end up in more places than others. But I think, I think there was no start, no end. It was just draw monsters, draw any and all monsters. Yeah. We'll find and a I, place for them. And I, yeah. And I think the great, one of, I think one of the great things about working with Marie was that they would, yeah, send me pictures, you know, pictures of monsters and they, and I would start writing the backstory and quite often Marie would be like, oh no, actually they're like this or they're like that. And would, so, you know, Marie already kind of had a really great idea of how they wanted these monsters to be. So it was so easy to write, you know, to, to, to write around that. And to add to that, you know, I think it's like the writer's dream, right? To just get sent like a cool, cool looking monster and, and for the us to be like, all right, what do you think? Here's what here's what I kind of know about the monster already, and I could add to it. It was, yeah, that was, you know, I think one of the things I really loved about my collaboration on this. It just felt very like, yes, and you know, just yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'm repping for Comic Book Yeti, so I guess I have to call the few, you know, our favorites. So, I mean, okay, I got to say, Marie, it's, it's pretty obvious that Nosferatu was one of your favorites, given the sketchbook when I checked out your website. Um, <laughs> so, Christoph, did you have a favorite? And Marie, are there other favorites? I mean, I think Marie and I both kind of, and we, we say this in the in the book back map as well, I think we both kind of have a very soft spot for the few. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's personally, I, yeah, I don't know why. We just really, yeah. I mean, I think Mothman is, you know, is sort of both in the book, but also, you know, in real life, it's sort of like something that just has captured both of our imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As does a lot of like the cryptid and like urban legend stuff. I mean, I love the Icky. I have, you know, I I I, I love all of them, but I think the, the Icky is the one that I kind of gravitate towards. Because um, I really, you know, I, I really love goblins. I mean, go- I'm just, yeah, I, I love goblins. I love little gremlins. Um, I love, I mean, Alan Dundridge, the, um, the, the jelly leader, cube, yeah, the jelly cube. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of just had a lot, you know, Marie, yeah, I think, I'm trying to remember. You wrote, remember, you wrote a think, couple jelly cubes in there. Like uh, a couple I scenes specifically mentioned the jelly cubes. Cause there was like another jelly cube that almost crushes Shay at the beginning. There that was really well. fun. And then we got another jelly cube in Alan. But in the battle sequences, like a couple monsters were called out where you were like ogres, jelly cube, skeletons. And I was like, how do include the cube? cube. Um, beautiful jelly cube. And I, I think uh, the jelly cubes was another instance where like, I think, Marie, you just drew it in the fedora. And then I was like, oh, oh. yeah. And then I kind of just made the fedora this jelly cube's entire personality. So it was another great example of like, Marie, would you throw something that would have details that didn't necessarily you know mean anything i could be like hey could it mean this and then we'd kind of jam on it so yeah but yeah. To, sorry to answer your actual question i, I gravitate towards the icky <laughs> yeah i can't honestly say i know much about the the local folklore there in australia except those that are more specifically tied to the dreaming um because of my background in cultural anthropology but were there specific regional creatures that like just had to be featured in there for either of you I don't actually think that we, I included any Missouri specific creatures, which is kind of weird. But our our cryptids in Missouri are kind of like we've got Momo, who's like a big pig, but we already have 
the orc faction and so many of them were like javelina style boar kind of style creatures so i didn't want to add just like another big pig sure um and then i think i included drop bears but only in the back matter like there's like a there's like a little <laughs> sticker back there that has like a a really bloodthirsty looking koala on there dropping from a tree but i don't i don't know did we include any specific we kind of like our imps are kind of like a cross between um well they're based off of cockatiels and cockatoos which are yeah. in in australia so that maybe like we have living australian creatures that we added to the book or yeah we made them look like cryptids i would yeah i i think um yeah i think we more drew from like yeah australian parrots particularly cockatoos which are like um a menace i marie and i's friendship kind of started because i would just send them photos of like just gangs of cockatoos just hanging out by the street and they were always like yeah and they were always like you just i'm just like couldn't understand that we just have gangs of parrots everywhere and that's kind of where the the imps came from um but in terms of pulling from any kind of australian mythology outside of drop bears not really um you know i i think and and this is probably something that a lot of american creators can relate to as well is you always want to be careful you know because i'm not a a first nations person about pulling from you know other cultures and not you know sure. you know doing just particularly you know in as it's a story all over the world but particularly in australia where you had you know it's mm-hmm. such a colonial history you know so i i would like to if you know if if the opportunity came up and i was able to do it in a way that's you know respectful but it, but i think at this stage the way we've kind of leaned more yeah it's pulling from australian animals and and the fauna and flora here yeah, i love the the association of you know parrots in general with with the imps because uh we live in florida and the the feral parakeets are an absolute and total <laughs> menace here of course they are they're too um, smart they're too smart but they're too stupid oh well we've kind of talked about the, the construction of all these different, you know, cryptids in there and all these different monsters. But even the the unlikable antagonist isn't isn't necessarily what I'd call scary. You know, it just didn't seem to be kind of your overall approach to go in that direction. Did it always start as kind of this more lighthearted adventure? You know, were there specific things that inspired you both? You know, I know some of the advanced solicits compared it to Critical Role, and you already mentioned a, a couple of, of other associations. I was always lighthearted. Yeah, like I don't think it was ever really heavy. I think specifically we talked about wanting to have a book that dealt with focusing on communication and empathy and solving problems through nonviolent means. And it's it's obviously dark that Shay's mom is gone. And I suppose it may be a little dark that Shay and Sabelle didn't really process those feelings in book one quite yet. but. It was always kind of a lighthearted book. We we didn't have, I mean, even our big fight sequence is not like a big intense thing. We always mm-hmm. wanted it to be really accessible for kids and inspire people to be peaceful and uh, empathetic instead of kind of like bold and and violent. Hundred percent. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I think um, when Marie and I first started talking. Uh, the kind of wanting to go in the lighter direction with a reaction to the fact a lot of the boys' media I kind of watched growing up was very like the protagonist learned some sort of skill that was combat focused, you know. I, so that I think it was a breaking of that, and I think 
the lightheartedness is, I mean, it's just, I always, if I find an opening for a joke, I always try and take it, which, which, which can be bad and good. But in Under Kingdom, I kind of just, you know, a lot of the media I also really liked as a kid was stuff where they just had joke after joke after joke mm-hmm. and just really, really kind of piled it on. Um, so that's kind of just how it turned out, you know, for Under Kingdom is just how many kind of jokes can I realistically fit in, you know, and then Marie's art is so so fun and energetic that they just sell every joke so easily so it kind of just encouraged me to want to do more yeah i mean go ahead oh no like sometimes you would write i think like in shay's basement there's like a lot of like fake you you were basically just like goofy goofy off the tv uh like home items and so yeah like infomercial stuff yeah so you gave me kind of like a couple guidelines and then I was just able to kind of riff and then you were able to riff. Yeah. We just riffed the whole book. (laughs) Every, every single joke just riffed back and forth. So you, you started with Shay and then you've also got Ed who he's kind of got a bit of a budding relationship with. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, being the underwarden has thrown quite a sizable wrench into all that. So did you, did you start with the monster overlay? Did you just start with Shay and Ed or exactly how did, how did the, and how did the pieces fall into place? Oh, uh, all at all at once in a big pile. I don't really know. Like it was always kind of like we knew that obviously Shay's going to have to have like a best friend in the human world and slash crush. So why not mm-hmm. just have them be the same? Sure. And then with the monsters, we were like, well, it's Under Kingdom. He's in a city full of monsters. So There's always going to be monsters. I think it was just they kind of all came to being together mm. and there was no one first and all monsters equal maybe. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I would agree. I think it was, I mean, you know, I, I think kind of for the, the book to work, right. There has to be tension between the under kingdom and the service world. Mm-hmm. So just from a, sorry, this is so clinical, but from a functional perspective, there has to be, something tying Shay to the surface world because, you know, his mom's gone, Sabelle, you know, as part of the under kingdom. So Ed is that link. Ed is that sort of his connection, you know, and I, I and, and as we, you know, if we get to do more, Ed, you know, it's going to be become only even more important, but yeah, that was kind of, I, I, I just think, yeah, that the Ed stuff was kind of always there because, because it always needed to be something pulling Shay back to the surface world. Well, I can tell you guys have a lot of fun, like creating, this book. So how yes. did you meet? How did that work? Emerald City Comic Con in 2018. Kristoff mm-hmm. came up and got a commission and gave me a Tim Tam. <laughs> and then we went and got I think like I think I was getting pizza that night. And I was just like, Do you want to go get some pizza? And you were like, mm-hmm. I do want to get some pizza. Oh, we went and got gluten-free pizza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we went to like a, a pizza place and got pizza, and it was just kind of like a Sometimes you meet someone, it feels weird to say this because I have met so many wonderful people by just like saying, let's go get dinner like right now, but only in group settings where it's like a convention and it's safe to do that. But yeah, I think we just kind of conversed briefly. You gave me one of your comics. I don't know that I had time to read it even yet. And then we had dinner and then we were like, let's pitch something together. And then we did. And now we're friends and we have a book together. Yeah. 
Yeah, it just kind yeah. of all happened really quickly. Totally. Yeah. No, we just kind of, yeah, started talking a bunch and, you know, the, the pitch kind of just kind of organically came together yeah. from that. But yeah. And as we kind of worked on the pitch, you know, we, the, the, the friendship kind of grew as well. So it's been really lovely. I mean, that's the, the wonderful thing about, you know, about comics is, you know, your collaborators become some of your close friends, you know, because mm-hmm. you're talking every day, whether it's about, uh, you know, the, the book or whether it's about, um, <laughs> you know, stupid things you've found on the internet, which is a lot of, yeah, but Marie and I are either talking about that or I'm sending them pictures of like our fish or our dumb cats. Yes. I, I mean, love yes. The, long, the new long fish. I, they look like lemons to me. They, I, look, we need to include them in a future. Uh, yeah. Kingdom, I think, but yes, chaos, yeah, the chaos noodles as we've called them at home. What are yeah. they, what is the, what is the technical term for this? particular like, type because i don't have a picture of the fish well i do cool, i have a picture of the fish but the audience doesn't they are coolie loach so they're just this long weird very cute fish loach. yeah they're what two inches long and they have yeah, kind of brown that. to white stripes that are alternating yeah and they kind of look like an eel is probably an easy way of describing yeah them. that's what i thought they were but they're actually a fish yeah they they look just we have a character in the book named lemon who's like a long dragon who's orange and black not orange wow yellow and black striped and they look just like him one of them's even coming out of a rock we can't see his behind this is great (laughs) i love lemon as a character by the way like that to have a dragon presented (laughs) like that is is fresh i i enjoyed that quite a bit i mean that was, I mean, that was such a great example of like all Marie because they basically just sent me. They were like, "Yeah, He's a, this is a long dragon. His name is Lemon," and I'm like, "Cool!" Like that yeah. was, you know, yeah. I've been drawn Lemon for like he's another Lemon is another monster that I've been drawing over and over and over again in some capacity for like ten years. Um, I don't know what his end looks like. I don't know how many arms or legs that he has. I don't know how many wings that he has. He just kind of has enough to fill in the space at all times. Before, I, he used to have like little butt cheeks that I would draw on him at like a random spot. But I took I took those out because <laughs> it's a children's book and they were too salacious. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, he he was kind of like a thing that I would draw on like bar tables and bathroom stalls uh, in my early 20s. So I was really glad that he got like a new life in a kid's book <laughs> and I can just keep drawing him forever. Well, somebody with kind of an obsession uh, about octennas or winged serpents. That, that was perfect. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, people will have who listen to the podcast regularly will hear me go on and on about octennas. I mean, I've got, they won't be able to see it, but Do there's you, a tattoo, tattoo like, oh my gosh. Arm right there. Yeah. What? That's yeah. awesome. I didn't know there was a technical term for it. Octennas. Yeah, Octena. So Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, this is my anthropology background. Um, the the Octenas were part of that. So in the Southeast of the US, um, there's a, a family connection. Again, these people on the podcast who listen regularly, like, oh my God, he's talking about it again, but I'm going to talk about it again. So there's a, a family root to this. Um, we have Native American ancestry that we can trace back to the Woodland period. And my family comes out of this little area in East Tennessee. Um, along the Co Creek, and the, the native legends go that the Octena entered the world through a cave that are at the headwaters of the Co Creek. And my parents, like, when they pass their ashes, they won't, they won't spread over Co Creek. So anyway, there's a, a very strong connection with, yeah, 
my family. Oh, and wow. Winged serpents. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So actually over my shoulder, again, nobody will be able to see it, but like there's a commission with it. All, my, all the commission work that I get has antennas in it. So. Thank you for sharing that, Byron. That's incredible. That's such an interesting, yeah, piece of like family, you know, mythology and family history. Yeah. Oh, God. Winged serpents are in so many other, they pop up in so many cultures too, you know, Um, maybe serpents in general. Um, Of course, unfortunately, in a negative way and Judeo Christian stuff. But I was. I was about to say, you know, yeah, I, as soon as you said wing seven, I immediately thought about, yeah, the, the garden, the garden of Eden story. Yeah. Yeah. But especially if you look at, um, Incans, Aztecs, anything from the Mesoamerican route, you know, winged serpents play a huge role there. Anyway, I'll, 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 I'm off on a tangent, but I, I love that you can have a, I'm glad that this is like a common enough thing now. (laughs) <laughs> that your your listeners can be like, oh no, here we go with the wing service. But also that I I love learning about it. I had no idea. Yeah, like, I'll I'll send really you some cool. info on it. Um, yeah, please. That would be, that would be incredible. Yeah, they're they're super cool creatures. Um, but anyway, Marie, your artistic style. Um, I want to <laughs> I want to wax on this for for a minute because it's it's really really cool. I really really enjoy it. Um, when I was drawn into to wanting to do the interview, you know, solely based on the concept because it sounded like so much fun. And when I started reading, I had this holy shit moment because it's like, man, this is gorgeous. You know, trying to describe it to to people who aren't familiar to give them sort of a landing spot. You know, I was like, there's some, like some Jim Mafood in here. There's some Keith Geffen in here. You know, those comparisons really don't do it justice. I just want to try to give people a mental image there. Oh. Um, no, and- I. I- I like I like both of those. That's really flattering. Oh, thank you. Um, and you handled the the colors and the lettering duties as well, so you kind of had total creative control. Um, visually, there's there's nothing subtle about this. It's you know it's it's bright and it's bold. <laughs> so you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what what's your background as an artist? Uh, so I learned to draw by watching Invader Zim and copying Jonan Vasquez's style uh, from Invader Zim specifically. Like I didn't really read a whole lot of comics or have a whole lot of comic access growing up. Okay. Uh, And so I went to a small Catholic school. I didn't really have any art class access growing up. So I was just kind of left to my own devices and for better or for worse, kind of just lack of proper art education until college led me to have this very weird graphic cartooning style kind of out of just like ignorance but also out of necessity because I didn't have access to like drawing tablets or anything like that so for a long time I would draw with a mouse and Adobe Illustrator so a lot of my like jagged line work comes from that specifically uh and then as I started getting into comics when I was in my in college, um, I was doing animation and taking comic book classes as like electives because that's kind of what you do when you do animation, I guess. Um, I was like, oh, I really like drawing comics. I really don't like doing animation when it became my day job. And I was like, oh, I want to come back and do comics. And I had a buddy in comics who was like, you can do all my coloring and lettering stuff. And so I started coloring and I started lettering and I learned how to do both of those things and kept drawing comics on my own in Adobe Illustrator for about two years. And then I pivoted to Photoshop and 
I got better because it turns out when you use like a drawing stylus instead of a, a mouse all the time, it's better for your wrist and your drawing style. Um, and then I started reading like Mignola and getting really into like print work and stuff like that. And so my style kind of changed again. And then I got really into Guy Davis uh, about, I don't know, eight years ago. And my style changed again. <laughs> And that's kind of, I think, where I'm at now is I just started picking stuff up. I, I did end up going to college, but for animation. So I did eventually get like a formal art degree, but I was never very good at like unlearning certain habits that I had picked up by just copying the same old mistakes over and over and over again, you know, mm -hmm. as you do. I say mistakes, but like for me, it was kind of just like, oh, this is what drawing is and this is how I like to draw. So it it felt very natural and right. And now I have gigantic blocky hands and a lot of like negative space and I have to fill in everything with lots of papers and stuff. But I, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy. I've actually been really happy with my style the past couple of years. So I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of fascinating in a way. Um, and the, your, your background um, makes a little more sense now because the, the panel construction um, were these, you know, pretty typical geometric patterns, um, which is, Kind of a break, if you will, from a lot of what is vogue at the moment with the, you know, these often they're just breaking panels left and right, you know, unique shapes, you know, that, you know, broken glass, you know, like almost mosaic oh, at, at times. Um, you didn't do that, you know. No. <laughs> I don't so, like those. I know that they're in vogue, but they're just not for me. Yeah, but it, it worked, yeah. you know, because as, as kind of vibrant and in your face as the visuals are, that created this really nice counterbalance that that reined it in a little bit, you know, and constrained it from from being too overwhelming, you know, except for obviously the reserved big splash page moments, you know, where, where you yeah. go big, you know. So is that is that more of Christoph's storytelling style or it sounds like that's much more of your imprint on the, the project? I well, I think like the Christoph didn't give me a whole lot of like panel shape direction. Okay. I think kind of the biggest thing that Christoph really had to remind me of quite frequently was this is a kid's book you don't have to make it that detailed pull back move on because i'll really get lost in the sauce and there were definitely panels that are very very busy in the final project product that were even busier before christoph saw them and was like please just take that <laughs> out we don't we don't need that take that out um but especially with highly cluttered visuals like mine, having very simple panels and having panels with gutters that don't just like constantly abut is a necessity. You need that like breathing space for your eyes so you can reset and refocus. And I was never a huge fan of like very interesting breaking panels growing up. Growing up as I, I learned to really love and enjoy comics. It just wasn't for me. And I think it was because it never really worked with my style at any point. It was always too too much when I did stuff like that. So I typically will do like only square panels or maybe a square panel abutting a circular panel. Uh, I don't really do any crazy shapes. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to know a little bit more about the, the imp-parent connection that we've talked about. Um, so I always think of ravens or crows kind of as the more crafty, stealthy specialists in the avian world. Um, I was actually a caretaker for an African gray who was particularly oh. foul-mouthed for, for quite oh, a long yes. time. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So tell, tell me more about imps and parrots um, and, and where that comes from. Because there's a bit of it in the afterward, but I want to I want to entice people. (laughs) My bird, Roxy, and her beautiful, crappy little face coming over and biting at me and stealing all my paper and going into plastic, not plastic bags, paper bags and just causing like she's so small. She, you know, cockatiels are are like the size of a a, like slightly smaller than a pigeon, Mm -hmm. but they're so in your face all the time stealing everything that you own she chewed up a cell phone she was hiding pieces of money like just they're crazy and we needed like a fun little like goober goblin why not just kind of incorporate these two things together and have like a beautiful little bird goblin and i would just take pictures of her face and i mean you you dealt with the african gray parrot and you know crows like it seems weird to say that birds are like extremely expressive, but they're extremely expressive mm-hmm. once you kind of understand what to look for in a bird. Mm-hmm. And so I would just like draw her face as Salt's face because it was just really cute and funny. And it worked really well because cockatiels are a little bit too smart for their own good, but too stupid to function in the regular world. So it kind of fit with the imps really well. And they're disgusting and loud when they're in large flocks. And so no one would want to be around them. It fit with the imp lore so perfectly. Yeah. And I think what I what we both kind of love about parrots is they've got them in. They're like very smart. They're very strong. You know, they're quite agile, but they kind of just have no way of controlling it or reining it in. And they're just kind of yeah. like chaos personified. You know, I mean, I... I don't know if African greys can do this, Byron, but I know with like uh, cockatoos, they can learn to like um, crack combination locks. Oh like yeah, they yeah. Can, yeah, like it's which is wild. You know, they can do all sorts of insane things, but then they're also just kind of you know the the you know the worst. You know, here if you mean here, like you know, they'll go through your bin and throw everything everywhere, and even if you put like a brick on top of the bin, they'll often figure out how to like get the brick off, mm-hmm. and you know they've been known to like remove anti-bird spikes and like, they just, yeah, they cannot be governed. And I think we kind of love that about them. And, and that this felt very, yeah, very, very imp energy. And I think the other kind of thing that we wanted to, you know, that, that we liked is that in terms of like inspiration for like imps or goblin like creatures, that it's not often that birds are kind of an inspiration for that. So we, 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 mm-hmm. we, we just love birds and it was a fun. Yeah. And we really liked that we could draw on that. Okay. Well, we're not talking, focusing on the book enough here, but (laughs) we're we're birds, fish. um, The natural world playing into our fantasy book. But that's great. It gives people perspective anyway. You know, I'm, I'm an aspiring colorist myself. So I'm a little bit of a junkie and and pay attention to that kind of stuff. Um, Circling back to parrots again, because we talk about parrots. Is is, Is that kind of where some of the color palette, you know, kind of was pulled from? Because I see some scarlet macaw, maybe some monk parakeet. They're like there's bold colors. Why did you use them? Uh, because I like them. I it's like a really it's kind of like a cop out answer. Like I there are some there are some pieces that I color very intentionally. I was working on a different project at the time called Where Black Stars Rise, and it had mm-hmm. a really really. Uh, heavily heavy focus on yellow and blue 
And with Under Kingdom, it was kind of a challenge because I was like, oh my God, well, they're in the Smoky Mountains, not the Smoky Mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains. That's kind of a real place. Mm-hmm. And I can't really, it's not a horror book, so I can't push those kind of thematic colors. And if I just do a cave, then it's all just going to be gray and brown, and that's very boring. Um, and so I struggled through the entire process of coloring any above ground scene because I was just like, I don't know what the real world is supposed to look like in this place colored normally. And then for the caves, I just would pick a color for every different room and then try to just pick colors that fit with it best I could. Um, So I think like Fang Keep was all like gum colored. I think it was like actually a photo I took of my gums and then base it off. Yeah, that's really gross. I, mean, I will take, perfect. I'll take photos of things and, and then copy colors from those things. So it was like a, a highlight on my gum. And so then I would just riff off gums. I think certain factions got like certain color schemes. I know that the, um, the strong, I wanted to be like, like glittery, uh, roller derby mad max style like hot pink queens and stuff like that and so i knew that they needed to have like fuchsia and bright pink and like bright blue and so they would they would always have those colors and so if they were in a location then maybe i would have to dull the colors outside i think at the end of the book there's some traitorous business afoot and you'll notice that the color scheme changed again and it's now like dark green and kind of acid looking and that's because you know claudas are big bad and she's I suppose color coded green now, just because I've used a lot of green with her in the past. Um, but yeah, there really was, it was just kind of like, what goes with this room at this time? This feels right. This feels good. This isn't too muddy. This stands out. It wasn't as intentional as I had maybe hoped it would be. I would definitely love to have a colorist for the next book. That would be okay. so nice. I think just because any sort of like, when it's wonderful having complete control over the visuals of something. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Uh, it's also just a lot of work. And yeah. <laughs> without the without our flatters, you know, we had two flatters, Jordan uh, and Jasmine. Without them, I would have been really sunk because after we kind of established a, a really strong color palette, Jordan especially was able to go in and, and kind of just apply colors to certain characters, knowing what he knew and really just saved, saved my butt. So much work making a comic. <laughs> well, and especially a graphic novel. I mean, yeah. this was just one of the things I had a note about yeah. because the, I didn't notice a lot of those natural single issue breakpoint, um, or at least they weren't, you know, super obvious to me. Was it always intended to be, you know, that longer graphic novel formatting? I think originally it was even longer. I think yeah. we, we we cut it down because it was like a, what could we handle workload wise? Okay. Which was really, which was really smart. I actually really love the size that it ended up as because it wasn't, it wasn't like a, a, it was never a slog to work on. It was always really fresh feeling. Totally, yeah, no, um, yeah, no. So it was always intended, you know, to be a graphic novel. Yeah. So, so generally, you know, just from I guess my process, you know, if I'm writing a mini series and I I break it down issue by issue, whereas if you know a graphic novel. I just kind of do the whole thing as an outline. Yeah. Cause you don't, again, you don't kind of need those, those break points or those, those cliffhangers in the way that you do with, you know, uh, when you're writing a mini series, but yeah, so we always intended it to be a graphic novel, you know, 
the great thing about it sort of moving from 150 pages down to 88 is it really forced me to just focus on what this story was, you know, this this opening story and not get too bogged down in like the details of like exorbitant world building and stuff and, you know, really just focus on on, on telling, you know, one fun story. So is there a, a trend? I mean, that's that's a lot of chopping, first of all. If, you, if it started as 150 and you cut it down that much, that's a lot. Um, was was any of that difficult? Like, was it more? So when you're writing for a younger audience, was that ever part of uh, of your your process? You know, of your thought process as a writer to be oh. like, just throw that out because like we don't need it. Let's keep this fun. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. You know, I the idea for like Under Kingdom had been in my brain for a long time, but originally is like an adult concept, which so. But then, you know, as I was kind of mulling it over as an adult concept, I was like, well, at some point you have to deal with violence and killing and it becomes Breaking Bad with monsters and I don't want to do that. So when, you know, Marie was like, hey, do you have any ideas for, you know, younger reader stuff? And I could rethink um, Under Kingdom it was really freeing because, you know, with kids, you don't have to do that. And, and I think, you know, kids are so open and accepting and I think it really leans towards you can be really efficient because you can just say, you know, in our world dragons are like this and kids are like cool you know they're not gonna you know and i i think that openness you know is really wonderful and really makes it so much from my perspective so much easier to write and create you know because you're not dealing with people that are walled off or you know they just they're so open to it so i found um yeah so i think that the fact that we're writing you know for kids 100 percent came into the net you know narrative design i think allowed us to be really quick and efficient well, you you seem to have a bit of a, a sweet spot for for writing for a younger audience. You have uh, the Earth to Chris Cleavy, which dealing with uh, childhood OCD. You know, you have Volume that's coming out, which teenage rebellion, super powered punks. That's with Scout, and you're working with Skylar Patridge on that. As yeah, story. yeah, Skylar Patridge, yeah. who's incredible. Yeah. So we'll we'll do our shameless self promotion. We we had Skylar on as a guest. Um, they were talking with Jimmy. So if anybody's interested, they can go back and listen to that. Um, but is that, that was so great. <laughs> she's really cool. Is that, is that YA, you know, our younger readers, is that where you see yourself? I mean, okay, we're, we're going to, we'll, we'll do the, the disclaimer here. So you're not pigeonholed that, you know, when DC comes calling, you know, you want <laughs> anything, but or is that where you're happier? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I hope this is a cop out answer, but I think, I just kind of go uh, which kind of, I guess, audience is going to allow me to tell the best story. You know, I'm with Under Kingdom, talking to like a, a middle grade and young YA audience was really, you know, really freeing. You know, same thing with kind of Chris Cleavy was always developed as kind of thinking about what it was like when I was a kid with OCD and not having kind of any reference point for what healthy mental health function is and, you know, the, and so I have a bunch of stuff at the moment that is a doll and I love, you know, people who know me know that my humor uh, tends, to, <laughs> tends to skew quite crude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how know, many fart I, jokes did you have to cut out when you were going from oh, 150 not, down? None. Not yeah, wow. not too many in, in Under Kingdom, but just in terms of like a lot of like the jokes I make are quite adult and crude in my, in okay. my personal life. So I had a lot of sure. like the adult stuff I pitch, you know, uh, kind of has that in it as well and and i definitely you know want to 
I, I kind of fell into YA in middle grade. Um, I think just because I, I you know, um, I have quite a, again, yeah, sort of a, all right, I'm trying to, yeah, I, I think I fell in because I kind of love the openness of kids and, and teens. And I, I kind of, you know, really understand what it's like to have that kind of teenage anger and to not be taken seriously, you know? So I think I really relate to that, but then I also have a bunch of, yeah, you know, adult stuff I want to tell. And just that said, logistically, you know, where the market is at the moment, there's a lot of big opportunity right now for YA and middle grade stuff, you know? So part of why I, you know, gravitate towards that is out of necessity, you know, where the bigger market is at the moment. Okay. Well, we, we've talked a little bit about it with, with Marie. Did, did you grow up with comics? You know, I, I confess to an ignorance of kind of what the, the market looks like in Australia, and I'm always fascinated by what people were exposed to and, and what was available. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great question. I mean, I would say more or less the Australian comics market is maybe in terms of uh, percentage of population-wise similar to the U.S. You know, so let's say like, 15% of people in the US, you know, like and read comics. It's probably similar in Australia, maybe a little less. The main kind of differentiator is the fact that the US has a population of 300 million and Australia is 25 million, you know. So it, it, here it's really quite small and, you know, there is no industry. I mean, that's, we have some publishers and stuff, but a lot of them are, you know, none of them, I don't know anyone in Australia who's working full-time in comics or making any kind of considerable amount of the income from comics is doing it through Kickstarter or working in the market, you know? So, um, so that's kind of the, the, the first thing I'll say, um, in terms of where we're at. So, you know, I didn't really, like Marie said, you know, I, the, I met them at, um, Emerald city 2018. And that's kind of when my career began to get some, you know, a bit of traction and, you know, is when I went to the U S so, Growing up in terms of the comics I had access to, a lot of a lot of it was what was available through a newsagent. Um, so, so that was like Simpsons comics. So I read a lot of Simpsons comics growing up. I love the Simpsons, and it, the comics were really easy to get and accessible. You know, so I I, I read those a lot as a kid, and it wasn't until I kind of hit eighteen, nineteen um, that I actually started accessing. You know, like going to a, a proper comic shop. Um, and and getting yeah starting to read uh x-men comics and 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 sort of moving out from there and eventually now i you know i read everything but you know it's it started with x-men and then the other kind of thing uh is that i was brought up in quite a conservative christian family so there was a lot of i guess you know self-editing about the sort of content i was i was allowed to access as well yeah um, I sympathize. Kind of, I mean, the D and D was the devil. Yeah. So I, I yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, you know that. Uh, no Harry Potter. Nothing with magic in it. Lot, read it. You know, a lot of Narnia. Loved Narnia as a kid. So yeah, they're definitely like that. That editing kind of self editing and like censorship aspect as well. So those those two kind of factors in playing. Yeah, we we will not dig too much into um, C.S. Lewis because that has always been the, the biggest like mental conundrum for me of why, why <laughs> Narnia is okay, why the guy who wrote the Screw Tape letters, right? Why this is okay, but D and D bad. Yeah, I on that front, I won't go too deep into it, but I, yep, that's yep. definitely something that I'm I'm and my relationship with Narnia is something that I, I'm hoping to kind of explore in the future work. Um, 
Well, talking of, of like your current work, um, I know you have meat meat for burgers. I'm not yeah, yeah, yeah. that much of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, wrapping up kind of soon, successfully funding on crowdfunding. Yes. So by the, look, so by the time this comes out, the crowdfunder would have would have ended, but it is available um through the Silver Sprocket store in um San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. So they they stock meat for burgers as do, you know, if for people in Australia, it's stocked through Cockatoo Comics. Um, yeah. And then there's a bunch of uh, comic shops in the UK, Gosh Comics uh, and Little Deer that stock it as well. So if you go to my, um, on my Twitter page, we've got a link tree set up that has all the different places you can, you can buy it. Um, but yeah, Me for Burgers is uh, written by me with the amazing uh, my Becca Kubrick as my collaborator on that. That's another example. It has a lot in common with the Under Kingdom in the sense that it's, it's just me and Becca jamming. I think that's that seems like that's probably your style. You know what? It's funny because I tend to be an over planner. So a lot of the time, you know, I, I don't approach an artist for a project until I have like a finalized outline. Um, and, okay. you know, both both Under Kingdom and Meat for Burgers are kind of anomalies in the fact that, yeah, it was sort of I had a rough idea and I came with the rough idea first. Um, and, you know, Meat for Burgers, you know, there is an overarching plan uh, and design behind it all, but there's no outline, you know, and it's very, it's much looser and a lot of, you know, elements we bring in again, are just stuff from, from uh, me and Becca talking and Becca mentioning something from their life and being, uh, me being like, Oh, cool. Let's add that in. Okay. Do so you, you like odd couple collaborators as well? Yeah. hundred percent. I kind of joke. <laughs> I kind of joke that, that I'm very lucky that the, a lot of the collaborators I work with are just like cool tend to be quite punky and like edgy people. And I'm just very white bread. So I think it's very funny that I tend to just, um, <laughs> I fall into like very, yeah, like just cool, edgy collaborators. And I'm, yeah, just like an edgy Ned Flanders is how I would describe myself. <laughs> very white bread, very tame. Um, I don't believe that for a second. This, this is a ma- like, this, I feel like if you were, if you were standing in a group of us, someone would be like, oh, no, he's totally right that that's true. But then the second you said one thing, people would be like, no, this is where oh, he belongs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> keep, him, keep him there. The <laughs> yeah, as soon as someone like asks me about what I've been watching and I go into a big rant about um, TLC TV shows. Yes. yes. I realize I'm, I'm a trash person. You're actually the imp. The imp is actually you. Oh, 100%. I mean, that's, you know, I I, I both, I think, Marie and I feel a lot of kinship towards the imps. And, you know, I'm a big, um, I I love goblins. I love orcs. I love any, you know, anything kind of green skinned and, 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 and weird. Yeah. Same. Well, Marie, you've worked for Dark Horse, Boom, Oni, Image. Um, You talked a little bit about it, but I, I want a little bit want to know more about where the the black stars rise because i'm a sucker for anything with you know oh. eldritch in the title um and I, I love this lovecraft's my my favorite writer but i really enjoy new interpretations that help move the mythology beyond kind of its xenophobic and racist roots so yeah tell me a little bit more about it uh well it's not it's it is loose the idea was conceived based off of the name, The King in Yellow, and Casilda's song. But we didn't copy, obviously, the original story uh, at all, really beyond that. It's 
pretty spooky. We've got a therapist in training who does not a great job, and her patient, a schizophrenic named Gazbeen, uh, is like, I'm out to Carcosa. And our therapist, Amal, goes and tries to find her, and in doing so has to confront a lot of eldritch history and lore and kind of just pain and figure out what she wants to do with that on the other side. Uh, very spooky. It has a lot of the use of yellow in it. It's got a lot of black stars in it that I put in there uh, over and over and over again, which I thought was fun. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a good creepy time. Not very reverent to Lovecraft chambers or beers, uh, but I I typically am not, and was lucky to have a, another co creator who felt the same way. <laughs> um, well, what else do you have going on aside from trying to keep Kristoff behaving? I am doing a all well. I you know I'm unsure of what the current rating actually sits at, but last I checked, it was a YA horror book uh, through Random House Graphics called Controlled Burn, okay. and it's actually a collection of short horror stories um, bundled together in a really freaky little book. Our kind of running joke at the house is we call it Kudzumaki uh, because. It's kind of like Uzumaki if it was set in rural Missouri and instead of uh, body horror, it was all, oh, God, mental illness sure does suck, doesn't it? What if it was actually an eldritch monster? In this case, it is. And so I got really lucky. I get to do a lot of short horror, which is kind of my favorite thing to do outside of weird kind of adventure humor. I don't know what we what we would call this necessarily because it's it's funny and, and strange um but yeah so i work on that and then uh i love nosferatu so in my spare time i write another comic called nosferatu hunter e which you can read for free on my uh camaraderie which is like patreon but it's a co-op instead of patreon so it's instead of you know you paying an investment guys you get to own a little piece of your pie and that's uh spelled c-o-m-r-a-d-e-r-y um like comrade uh and so yeah i do that and then i do another comic called death to the wizard kings which is about uh bat spawn which are another type of ghoul and goblin <laughs> coming out of the vats uh slash giant bong that they live in and killing all of the wizard kings um and that one's really fun so i do i do a lot of that stuff yeah I'd i will have to check some of that stuff out <laughs> um, yeah um, but- on, I was going to say, I've had the great privilege of looking over some of the controlled burn stuff, and it's going to be yeah. so good. It's I'm yeah. so, like, the stuff they're letting you do, Marie, is yeah. insane. I'm so excited. Every time I get my notes back, I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just, we'll steam ahead. I guess this is allowed now. Then I just continue. Yeah, it's very weird. Uh, I feel very fortunate to kind of have this level of freedom to do this weird horror book. Uh, I drew a tackle box full of tongues the other day and no one said anything about it. So nice. Yeah. I feel, I feel good. <laughs> I wish I could draw. I don't know what I'd come up with. It probably wouldn't be a tackle box. of <laughs> I, I would not truly when I started coloring uh, all those years ago, I don't necessarily know that I would have envisioned myself drawing a tackle box full of tongues either, but here we are, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if this is like the brightest or darkest timeline. It's it's hard to say with with that sort of drawing. 
<laughs> well, where can everyone find you both online? Well, and that's assuming I know you're both on Twitter, but assuming we still have Twitter whenever this comes out. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I yes, I do have Twitter and I'm at so angry, S-O underscore E-N-G-E-R-Y. But also I'm on Instagram at so angry. Uh, same thing, S-O underscore E-N-G-E-R-Y. But I would really like for people to sign up for my website, not my website, my newsletter, which is at soangry.com, S-O-E-N-G-E-R-Y.com. Uh, because I plan to do some fun stuff with that and add some like free comics and weird things and maybe even like a little book review to force myself to read in the new year. I haven't really read in like two or three years, which is really horrible. And I miss it. And I feel like I'm becoming more literate every day. So I would really like for people to sign up for my newsletter. That's kind of what I'm pushing. Okay. Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Christoph Borges. So Christoph is spelled uh, Christ, C-H-R-I-S-P with an O-F, <laughs> uh, just one F. And Borges is B-O-G-A-C-S. And you can also catch me at my website, which is ChristophWritesComics.com. Awesome. Well, my new little ending segment is, is all about the hustle. Um, I've told people, got hustle on my hat. I've worn it for every <laughs> yeah. podcast um, episode that I've done for this because my background, uh, I spent 15 years um, helping like recording artists and um, on the road working with bands and yada, yada, yada. And then I was over a decade as a, a fine art photographer and a teacher. Um, so art is, is inherently a hustle. Everybody who's in the creative medium understands that. But I want the one little nugget from both of you of wisdom for the person out there that that may be trying to make it as a comics creator or a young person who's reading Under Kingdom and just is thinking about it as a future career. Um, this can be emotional support. It could be like uh, an overcoming an obstacle. It can be anything. So what you got? Do you, do you want to go first, Marie? Sure, because I, I typically get invited to do a lot of college classes as the doom bringer. <laughs> okay. And Christoph, you'll probably be a good kind of uh, mood lifter after this. It's all about resilience and fortitude, and you're going to have to decide what things you are comfortable living without. Because if you want to do comics full time, that's a really hard road to hoe, uh, especially if you're saddled with a lot of debt or you are not independently wealthy. And so make sure that you know what you are willing to give up to achieve what you want to in comics. And that can be like, oh, I'm not willing to give up a, a place of my own to live. I, I don't want to live in my parents' house. Or I lived in my cousin's basement for like three years. I don't want to live in my cousin's basement. So I have to have a part-time job. So then what I'm going to give up is social time. I'm just going to have less time to go out with friends. And for some people, that's really acceptable. For me, it wasn't acceptable. I wanted to live in the basement <laughs> because it was much cheaper. And so I chose the basement. And I lived in a, a really wet, dank basement for a number of years. But I also had the time, because I was able to work a less demanding part-time job, to focus on my craft, which is what's really important. Other piece of advice that I would give, which is like another two for Doombringer, is publishing industry is really, really difficult to break into, but you also don't really need them anymore. They all close. And unless you're getting health insurance, what's the point? If you're going to get a pittance anyway, just put it out yourself. Draw the comic. Just draw it. If 
what's most important to you is awards and recognition, fine. Draw an award-winning comic. Work really hard. Get that sap. Get, get, get. If you don't care and what you want is eyes, then put it up there for free. My God, put it on your website. Put it as a PDF. Let people download it for free. I put all my comics on my website. I put my casket land on my website. It's a tabletop RPG that I do. And I offer a lot of them for free. And most of the time, people tip because they like the comic. But what's most important to me is that people see them. And if that's what you want to do, know what concessions you're willing to make to make that a reality. It is very difficult. But I every day I get to wake up and draw comics. And I do like that. Uh, and I do not mind living without to live with that. So. Oh, and always make sure that you get a fair page rate, and that page rate is at least $150. Probably more with inflation next year. Really, it should be more like 200 or 300 now, but I'm being realistic, so at least get 150 That was, yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with that, Marie. I think that idea of, like, what are you willing to, yeah, to sacrifice is, you know, is, is, is a re really important part. And just to... Add on to that, um, and hopefully, maybe be a little bit more, a little less doom bringing. But I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, but I also agree completely with Marie. You know, there's, there's, you've got to be realistic about it. You know, is as a creative, you really are cultivating. You know, in 2022, you're cultivating two skill sets. The first is your creative skill set and craft. You know, if you're a writer, that's writing. You know, if you're an artist, that's drawing. Whatever, whatever, wherever kind of in comics you want to be. You know, colorist, letter, or whatever. You know, you need to obviously develop your craft, and you need to spend time. And energy on that, um, and then the other skill you need to you, you need to work on, and by work on I mean deliberately set you know time and energy into learning and developing is your ability to network, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, my again, I didn't really begin to get good traction until I realized that I needed to be quite mindful and put specific attention into you know into my networking and cultivating a network, you know, and. You know, I think for maybe older comic creators, they kind of were kind of from a time where they didn't need to do that. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you see it, in 2022, if you want to be successful, you have to work on both. You know, you you have to cultivate both skill sets. And and a really good way of thinking about the networking skill set because it feels really counterproductive for a lot of creators. You know, particularly if you like creating stuff on your own and in isolation. Um, the way I see it is that you know. Learning to network is giving is really about giving your creative work the biggest audience it can get, you know, and 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 giving it the opportunity to thrive, you know, because if you don't know how to network, the reality is your art or your you know work probably isn't going to get seen, you know. It's as simple as that, you know. Whether that's with editors or other creators or you know people online, you want your work to to get the attention it deserves, you know, then you have to network. Thank you both for that. That's amazing advice for everyone out there. Well, look, hopefully well, it's not too grim, but yeah. We, yeah. That's re it's real. I mean, and like that's that's what people need to hear is, is the reality of things before before they think I can get in here and I can do this. Um and um I was interviewing David Boer and like one of the amazing things is that he was saying is people who will just come up to him and for the first time he's he's met them, ever met them. Like, hey, can you help me? Like, uh, relationships no. matter. Relationships <laughs> matter. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. 
it's all yeah, it's yeah. so much easier too then because like there's no centralized co-working unit with comic i mean it's not obviously we should have a union which would be fantastic we don't have one yet so we're all just kind of loose and spread out it's your coworker culture it's how you know what's acceptable in the industry and what's not and what's happening and what's not um yeah, yeah. It's also you kind of just need other comics people to yell about comics with because your very normal spouse and partner or friends do not want to hear about the insane stuff that is happening in comics behind the scenes every day. You need someone oh, yeah. else to to kind of scream about that with. Oh, yeah, they, they don't really want to be like, yeah, have to listen to you going on an hour about how some comic company uh, has been bought out by some big company and now all the creators are in trouble or whatever, which right, is an yeah. ongoing narrative in comics. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, you need yeah people who are kind of inside the game already to to you know to talk to vent and to help 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 you to like it's also it feels weird to be like professionals in comics because I also truly believe that to be a professional in comics you just have to say I'm a professional in comics and then it's it's becomes a truth because you've claimed it that's all you have to do is have a comic and make comics and then you're a pro uh so i think a lot of people are focused on like becoming wealthy at comics and that is very very rare uh-huh yeah <laughs> or having like a my only day job is comics and i don't really know many comic creators if any whose only source of income is comics they're always doing something else in addition to comics i illustrate on the side i do game stuff on the side so it's art related but it's not all comics. And truly, I always worry that people who make comics don't want to share them because they don't feel like it's worth it because it's not going to be put in a book or put in an anthology or yield them any sort of like monetary gain. And everybody loves to read a free comic. Everyone's always, if you're going to hand someone a free comic, they're always going to look at it unless it's really disgusting and weird and racist like most most people will take and enjoy a free comic so just put it up there just do something and put it up so you can when you when someone says you're not a pro you can be like oh well would a not pro have a totally cool legit website with a bunch of comics on it already that's what i thought back off nice well i'm gonna make my son cringe right now and i'm gonna do it on purpose um the under kingdom is fire, right? In, in, in the parlance of the youngsters, right? Oh. Um, which is to say, which is to say, in the old guy language and terminology, which is me, right? Um, it's really, really good. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, I can't wait to to pass it on to my 15 year old because I know he's going to absolutely love it. So oh, I appreciate you both for thank for coming so on much. the show and and hanging out with me today. So, yeah, thank you for awesome. having us. Yeah, it's been such a blast. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like uh, graphic novels in particular are a little bit more tricky to talk about. So hopefully we've we've danced around things without giving too too much of it away. Um, it's much easier to to deal with like a single issue because totally. even if you screw up with the spoiler, well, there's always more. So yeah, right, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. 
Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.